welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. I've been doing a series through a couple of weeks before Advent and running into the Advent season that we've called uh, The Coming of a Promise. And what we're doing is looking at the coming of the greatest promise of the Bible as a template for how God fulfills promises in people like you and I. And so um, this morning we're into part five. We introduced the series by kind of framing it up, and then I talked about the people of the promise, and we looked at the genealogy of Jesus and also Mary, and talked about the fact that promises happen through incredibly ordinary, very lowly, flawed-to-the-bone people, just like you and me. So if you feel incredibly disqualified, uh, as Mary did, then you're, you're in the running for um, a promise happening in and through you. I talked about the pathway of a promise and how it goes through three stages, its birth, its death, and its supernatural resurrection. I so wish that somebody had a, given that sermon to me when I was a young man, because I just assumed that having been given a promise, the graph would go up and to the right. What I didn't know was that it's customary that the line drops right off the bottom of the horizontal axis and you drop into the stage that's called the death of a vision, which actually looks exactly the opposite of what God had promised you, a wilderness that is the opposite of what God promised you. But that's customary. That's, that's normal. And so if you're in a stage where you feel like God has given you a promise, but it seems a million miles away, you might not be as far off track as you actually think you are. Last week I talked about um, the call on our lives to protect the promise. You can't initiate the promise, that's absolutely supernatural, but once the promise has conceived within you, it's your call to partner with the Lord in terms of protecting that promise, nurturing that promise. This morning, I want to uh, talk to you about the adversary of the promise, and we're reading uh, as a beginning point Matthew chapter 2 and the first 18 verses this morning, and it goes like this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem village, Judah territory, this was during Herod's kingship, a band of scholars arrived in Jerusalem from the east. They asked around, where can we find and pay homage to the newborn king of the Jews? We observed a star in the eastern sky that signaled his birth, and we're on a pilgrimage to worship him. When word of their inquiry got to Herod, he was terrified, and not Herod alone, but most of Jerusalem as well. Herod lost no time. He gathered all the high priests and and religion scholars in the city together and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? They told him Bethlehem, Judah territory. The prophet Micah wrote it plainly. It's you, Bethlehem, and Judah's land, no longer bringing up the rear. From you will come the leader who will shepherd rule my people, my Israel. Herod then arranged a secret meeting with the scholars from the east, pretending to be as devout as they were. He got them to tell him exactly when the birth announcement star appeared. When he told them the prophecy, when he told them the prophecy about Bethlehem and said, "Go find this child, leave no stone unturned. As soon as you find him, send word, and I'll join you at once in your worship." Instructed by the king, they set off. Then the star appeared again, the same star they had seen in the eastern skies. It led them on until it hovered over the place of the child. They could hardly contain themselves. They were in the right place. They had arrived at the right time. They entered the house and saw the child in the arms of Mary, his mother. Overcome, they kneeled and worshipped him. 
Then they opened their luggage and presented gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In a dream, they were warned not to report back to Herod, so they worked out another route, left the territory without being seen, and returned to their own country. After the scholars were gone, God's angel showed up again in Joseph's dream and commanded, get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Stay until further notice. Herod is on the hunt for this child and wants to kill him. Joseph obeyed. He got up, took the child and his mother under cover of darkness. They were out of town and well on their way by daylight. They lived in Egypt until Herod's death. This Egyptian exile fulfilled what Hosea had preached, I called my son out of Egypt. Herod, when he realized that the scholars had tricked him, flew into a rage. He commanded the murder of every little boy two years old and under who lived in Bethlehem and its surrounding hills. You know, the broad response to Messiah's arrival in this portion of Scripture can be divided into two. Number one, homage, as is represented by the wise men, and number two, hatred, as is manifest in Herod. When we think about the major players in the Christmas drama, we tend to leave Herod out of the picture. Uh, I suspect, like me, you've never seen a nativity scene with Herod standing in it. Yet in this text, he's mentioned nine times, which is actually the same number as the child is mentioned. And it seems that Matthew, as the author, intended to deliberately set them in juxtaposition. They are most certainly a study in contrasts. Herod, if you know anything about history, was a fascinating character, much in the same way as a 20-meter saltwater crocodile is a fascinating creature. Um, while indulging that fascination, it really does pay to ensure there's a three-foot glass window between you and that crocodile. If you get too close to either the crocodile or to Herod, you're done for. They were both, they are both fascinating creatures. Herod gives us a very clear glimpse into the nature of evil, and in some ways he was an incarnation of evil. He was a dirty, street-fighting politician of the very worst kind and was adept at assassination and murder to guarantee that the positions that he uh, obtained remained unchallenged. On coming to power, he slaughtered the last remnants of the previous Hasmonean dynasty. He executed more than half the Jewish Sanhedrin. He butchered 300 court officials. As his life unfolded, it's a story of murder and mayhem. He murdered his favorite wife, Mariam, in a fit of rage because he suspected her of plotting against him. That suspicion apparently was quite unfounded. He killed his eldest son, Antipater, and two other sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, for the same paranoid-fueled reasons. Augustus, the Roman Caesar at the time, quipped that it was far safer to be one of Herod's pigs rather than one of his sons. He said that they were much more likely to be butchered. Um, That quip, by the way, was much more epigrammatic and pithy in the original Greek because it's a play on words. The word for pig is hus, the word for son is huis. Much safer to be hus than huis, he was saying. Something of Herod's warped and savage nature can be seen Uh, regarding the provision he made uh, when his own death was drawing near. He collected many of Jerusalem's most distinguished citizens. He had them arrested and incarcerated on trumped-up charges, and he commanded that at the moment of his death, they were all to be executed. 
The basis for this thinking was he knew nobody would shed any tears over his bloodthirsty life, and he determined that there would at the very least be some mourning at his passing, even if it wasn't for him. His plans were not fulfilled, not carried out. Even Herod's servants who were used to his wickedness regarded this plan as obnoxious in the extreme, and they refused to fulfill it. Michael Green described Herod as a man of ruthless cruelty with a fanatical neurosis about any competition, and it was quite in character that he would order the execution of the male children in Bethlehem. It's really impossible to consider the coming of the promise without understanding, without coming to terms with the fact that its arrival will be bitterly contested. And not only that promise was bitterly contested, but any promise that God gives is bitterly contested by the enemy that perceives it as an invasion of its territory. And just as D-Day was not a stroll on the beach, but was bitterly contested by the army that it was ensconced in Europe, every promise is an invasion of satanic territory. And there is an adversary set against this promise and any other promise that's made by God. And a failure on believers' part to understand this means that so often we are shocked and confused when the resistance occurs. You know, the Allied soldiers weren't surprised as the, uh, the landing craft landed on the beaches of Normandy and the, the, the decks went down. They weren't surprised that they were being shot at. They understood that they were in a war. But so many believers are breathtakingly surprised by opposition that arises against them when they seek to move in the purposes of God and see the promises regarding their lives fulfilled. You know, President Bush was speaking to the American public just after 9-11, and he made this statement. He said, the coalition is setting the conditions for future operations. He was talking about revenge, effectively. And he said, we make the conditions for the future operations, and events will unfold at a time of our choosing. Now, that sounds very good, but every field commander at the coalface of battle knows that things are not that simple. As one of those field commanders noted, in carrying out any military plan, commandos like to say it's important to remember that the enemy has a vote. There's more than one army on the field. There is an enemy to be reckoned with. And the Christian faith is not a two-party transaction. It's not just a matter of God and us. The God who presents himself to us and then stands back, allowing free will to uh, operate and for us to decide what our choices and responses will be. That is not the picture that the New Testament presents us with. Life is not simply a two-party transaction. Life is, in fact, a three-part cosmic drama. There is an enemy that gets a vote. The New Testament gives us a much more nuanced picture of evil than simply human failing. It is not just a matter of societal forces, personality disorders, psychological dysfunction, economic dislocation, or a lack of education. 
as you listen to politicians and people talk about the problems of the world, you would imagine that it's one of those things. But in the New Testament, we see behind all of this brokenness, hiding in the shadows, a personal intelligence, one with an implacable will and an unrelenting purpose that is far stronger than the will and purpose of any human being. He is not some two-bit player standing on the margins of the story. He has a colossal role in the unfolding of this drama. And as you look at the scripture, you get some hints and insights into the malevolency of this character. Now, I'm not going to take time to explore this, but sometime in your devotions, you might like to have a read of Job 41, for example. The text describes a creature that is called Leviathan. Now, some translations trying to make it readable for a modern audience make this out as if it's crocodile maybe one of those big 20-meter saltwater crocodiles, and as fearsome as they are, that's not what this passage is talking about. It's talking about a creature called Leviathan, and in Canaanite imagery, Leviathan was pictured as a twisting serpent with seven heads, a a dragon. And, And for those of you who have read Revelation, you know something about a dragon with crowns and heads. And the Bible presents this picture. For example, in chapter uh, Psalm 74, verse 14, it talks about Leviathan and it talks about his heads, plural. And the slaying of this creature, he's, he's formidable, he is hostile. He's described in Job 41 as king over the children of pride. That gives you some indication of what we are actually talking about. And the text goes on to say, you tangle with him and you do so at your own peril. In fact, in verse eight of Job 41, it says, if you so much as lay a hand on him, you will not live to tell the story. By the way, elsewhere in the scripture, in Isaiah 27 verse one, for example, we are told that in the future, Yahweh will do to Leviathan what nobody else can do. He will destroy this adversary. So we are presented in the scripture with evil that is more than simply human failings. In the New Testament, we are informed that this adversary exerts incredible influence and control. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, it says, In times past, you obeyed the world's unseen ruler, who is still operating in those who do not respond to God. In fact, the Passion Translation says, You lived obeying the dark ruler of the earthly realm, who fills the atmosphere with his authority and works diligently in the hearts of those who are disobedient to the truth of God. Now, you know what? We postmoderns, we don't know quite what to do with this kind of picture. You know, for many people, even who would call themselves Christians, talk of a personal devil is somewhat embarrassing. We, we might use the demonic or the devil as a euphemism, a, a synonym, as I said before, of the human problems that society faces. But really, we embrace the idea that this is an evil personality. Andrew Dubal, uh, uh, Del Banco wrote a book. Um, he, he is not a believer, makes no claim to be one, but he wrote a book called The Death of Satan. And in the book he wrote, Satan has lost his grip on the modern, postmodern imaginations. He is a broken-spirited relic of a perished past. And you know what? There would be nobody happier to read that than him. He noted, Del Banco, I mean, noted that in earlier generations, evil actually had a name. It had a face. It had an explanation. The devil, Satan, Lucifer. 
for those generations behind the evil, they understood that there was a personality motivated by obdurate pride and steadfast hatred. In our day, we've reduced him to a comic figure with horns, a pitchfork, and tights, and we called him Hot Stuff or Little Lucifer. Delbanco, as I say, who is no believer, noted, however, that a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and our intellectual resources for coping with it. The repertoire of evil, he says, has never been richer, and yet never have our responses been so weak. We, we, we don't know how to explain evil. In the face of pure, unadulterated, undiluted evil, our liberal humanistic expl explanations fail. And we are forced to stare into the face, the personal face of real evil. Romeo Delaire, who was a Canadian senator, became well known for his confrontation with the powers of evil during the Rwandan genocide. And he was once asked by a reporter, how is it possible for you to continue to believe in God after what you have seen in Rwanda? And he answered, I know there is a God because in Rwanda I shook hands with the devil. I have seen him, I have smelled him, I have touched him. I know the devil exists and therefore I know there is a God. You know, during the Rwandan crisis, there was a Time magazine cover that tried to portray the wickedness and evil that was going on in that place. And it had a black background, and in the blurriness of the black background, you could, there were hints of corpses lying everywhere. And there was a headline on the magazine that said, there are no devils left in hell, they are all in Rwanda. You know what, you could use that headline and replace Rwanda with any number of names and you wouldn't have to go back into ancient history to have a long list. Just using names from living memory makes sobering reading. Kosovo, Darfur, Syria, the killing fields of Cambodia, Malai in Vietnam, just, just a few, Columbine. You are staring into the face of more than just social dislocation and a lack of education. These and other atrocities absolutely defy human explanation. Some of you may have read Eli Weissel's book. He died just recently. He wrote a stunning book that became a, a multi-million dollar bestseller, a Nobel Prize winner, just simply called Night. And he talks about his experiences as a Holocaust survivor. You, you cannot read that book without facing evil beyond human description. You are staring into the face, the personal face of evil. When you come to the New Testament, we aren't presented with an explanation or an argument for the existence of Satan, of this personality. He is simply assumed. This great adversary is part of New Testament cosmology. And as believers, we have to come to terms with it. We've often tried to tell a story without including him, but it simply cannot be done. Theologian Stanley Harrowis says, no enemy, no Christianity. The famous Welsh preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, speaking in the same vein, said this, a belief in the devil is an absolute essential to a belief in the biblical teaching concerning sin and evil. A belief in the devil is absolutely essential to a true understanding of the biblical doctrine of salvation. You leave him out and you have no story. The plan 
of God to deal with this adversary is at the heart of the Christmas promise and its story. And I'm not going to take time to unpack this thought, but I'll give it to you just with the thought that maybe you can do some study or some contemplation on it. But we talk about Christmas time as being God manifest in the flesh. And that word manifest is an interesting word. It means to bring out and to reveal. There is something that is brought out from the shadows and laid manifest for all to see. And we are told what this manifestation of God is about in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. Well, we understand that. We're happy with that. But 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's part of the story. He came manifest to take away our sins. He came manifest to the one, to destroy the one who has set himself in abdured hate and pride against you and against the promises of God that God wants to work in and through you. And he came also to manifest the heart of Father God toward us. In John 14 verse 9, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. There's a manifestation that goes on through and, and in the promises of God. On that first Christmas, with the coming of that promise, there was resistance. Herod was on that first, in that first Christmas story, a pawn in the hand of a shadowy adversary who stood behind him. And he was a pale reflection of a deeper, more sinister, more powerful evil, deeply committed to stopping the promises of God from happening. Jesus talked about him, and he said, he was a murderer from the beginning. John chapter eight. He's always hated the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, it's consistent with his character for he's a liar and the father of lies. And Herod, as a murderer and a liar, is a pale shadow of the one that stood behind him. You know, Herod was, in the same way the Pharisees were when Jesus confronted them, children of his father, the devil loving to do the evil things that his father did. You know, every generation has had its Herods. We rejoice when the Herods go down and are removed. But like the beast that's wounded in the book of Revelation, it comes back to life. We see again and again other Herods rising up. We might stop, I think it was the Lord of the Rings, we stop evil for a season, Tolkien says, but it rises up again. The dark power in the west or the east, whatever, the, whatever it was in Lord of the Rings, rises up once again. And in every generation there has been the Herods. Cain kills Abel. And 1 John chapter 3, verse 12 states of Cain, like Cain who belonged to the evil one, he killed his brother. Then a famine, if you know the Bible story, I suspect demonically induced, threatens to wipe out Abraham's family. But God sends Joseph to Egypt and the family are spared. 400 years later, Pharaoh tries to kill all of the male children at the time of Exodus. And had he been able to do that for one generation, that would have been the end of it. But God raises up Moses. Saul tries to snuff out David's promise and David's life. Queen Athaliah tries to kill all of the king's sons, but God saves Joash. Haman tries to kill the Jewish race, but they are saved by Mordecai and Esther. Herod kills the innocents in the hope that he would take out the Messiah as well. It's a pattern that runs right through this promise, right through every promise. 
Revelation chapter 12, verse three and four gives a summary of the devil's purposes. It says, I saw a large red dragon, Leviathan, with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept away one third of the stars in the sky and he threw them to the earth and he stands in front of the woman as she's about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it is born. You'll notice I changed the tense. It's actually past tense. And it's speaking of the Messiah, but it's true not just in the past, but in the present, and it will be in the future, because this is how this enemy, this adversary works. He stands before the promise as it's about to be birthed and seeks to stop it in its infancy. There's an adversary who tries to kill promises and promise bearers. And what I'd want to say to you this morning as we move into this Christmas season is don't be naive. He's after you and he's after your promise. Don't be duped by a veneer of, a generic brand of spirituality that has no devouring enemy. You know, Peter writes to us, be alert, be of sober mind. Your devil, the en your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. You'll notice that resistance and suffering are linked here. Suffering is not unusual for the Christian life. I don't know why we think it is, but whenever it happens, we go, why me? Sometimes I wonder if heaven would answer back, why not you? You're in a war. What do you expect? This is the nature of the story that we are part of. And things happen that aren't good, that aren't what we would choose. Now you say, Don, are you saying that every single thing that happens is demonic? No, of course I'm not. But I suspect that for us postmoderns, you know, we count just about everything out. And I tell you, it's not like that. Peter says here, resist him. You know, it's interesting, but the Greek word is the, the word from which we get our English word, the medical term, antihistamine. It's the it's, it's, it's uh, whenever this infection comes, you take this to resist that and stop it in its tracks. And Peter is saying, you have to have enough sense to recognize there's a sinus infection going on and take the antihistamine. You don't just go for days and days, weeks and weeks and months and months and don't take something to stop that. When you recognize the fingerprints of darkness, when you see behind the shadow of the events, a, a, a more sinister plan, a more sinister shadow, then, then do something. Start to resist, start to pray, recognizing that suffering will be part of the process. Let me finish this morning by taking one dreamer, by taking one person who had a promise over his life and just isolating some of the events that took place that I think behind the scenes was a satanic figure trying to destroy the dreams. I referenced Joseph before. A famine had affected the land, and you know the story. Joseph was sold by his brothers. It looked like a, just a human thing. It looked like a broken, dysfunctional family, but in, perhaps behind the scenes was an enemy who was trying to stop a little dreamer. Anyway, Joseph gets sold into Egypt, and, and his promise, his dreams go through that phase that I talked about in the death of a vision phase, the death 
of a promise. I mentioned to you that during that phase, God actually is really leaning in. He's not absent. Although he seems to be deus absconditus, he is not absent. He is leaning in, seeking to make the adjustments in your character that are required so that when you stand in the fulfillment of the dream, you stand there safely. What I didn't say is at the same time, there's another figure leaning in. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's, an, <clears throat> there's another figure leaning in trying to squelch and squash and smother and suffocate the promise. And I've studied Joseph. He's one of my favorite characters. And over the years, I've gone through this man's life and I've tried to imagine what it would be like to be in his shoes. What kind of satanic temptation would come to him in those dark times? And number one would be cynicism. The cynicism that grows within all of us as we are disappointed and disillusioned because things don't happen the way that we imagined they might. And a quiet voice is saying, why bother praying? If this is what God does to his friends, no, no wonder he has so few of them. And why would you continue to stay believing God when all of this stuff happens? Why don't you just toss it? And we become, we become cynics. Satan trying to ruin him and make him an unbelieving cynic. And so many people go down that track. You know, I've heard people talk about um, this process of deconversion, you know. They are now bailing out of what they'd once bought into. And the term they use is, I've deconverted. Well, you know what? What they've done is they've become a cynic. They've become an unbeliever. They've forsaken faith. Let's talk about it in terms of Bible, not just fancy, sophisticated, pseudo-intellectual terms. They have forsaken faith. They've bought into the lie that Satan has sold them. I'm, I, I'm not angry with them. I'm, I'm brokenhearted over them because some of them have been part of our congregation and they've now deconverted. And my heart breaks for them and I pray for some of them. Don't buy into the cynicism. Understand that your dream may well go through very dark periods, that God, in fact, you know, I said last week, Joseph was thrown in a pit, and pit is an acrostic for a prophet in training. And you'll all have your pits at some point in time. That is par for the course. It's the normal way. And when you land on the bottom of the, of the pit, I know you don't stand up, dust yourself off and go, well, praise God, that's part of the journey. Mostly we get up and go, ah. And we look up and see the people that have thrown us in there and we're tempted to do the second thing, which is to enter into real bitterness. Joseph's heart grappled with bitterness. I mean, as the story unfolds and you see Joseph cut open, what pops out is the sweetness of just forgiving grace. But don't think he just landed there by chance. You know, when Jacob was prophesying over Joseph just before he died, he said, the archers have sorely wounded you. And the Greek word, or the Hebrew word for sorely is the word mara, which is bitter. He struggled with bitterness in those dark periods in, in Potiphar's household and also in the jail. He wondered about his brothers and why they would do that for him, and he battled over that. The Bible also goes on to say in that prophecy that he developed deep roots that went deep down into a well. Jacob is referencing his devotional life as he reached deep for water because he needed it in those moments. He was nearly overwhelmed by the bitterness of hurt that came from people that should have loved him and didn't. And I know that many of you battle with that as well. People that, that you should have 
been able to rely on, people that should have loved you, people that should have cared for you and should have looked after you and should have nurtured your dreams and just didn't, and the struggle to forgive them. And, and I want to just say to you, it will be a struggle. Sometimes dear Christians will come up to people who have been deeply hurt and tell them three days after it's happened, oh, you need to forgive. And you want to just slap them, don't you? No? Only me? <clears throat> it takes time sometimes. You have to work through it. But friends, you do have to work through it because if you don't, it poisons you and it poisons the dream within you. You know, when you're gripped with unforgiveness, it's like drinking poison and hoping another person will die. Most often they're not gonna die, but the bitterness will kill you. You know, the third thing that I see in Joseph that I wanna briefly reference is that he could have easily developed a, a rebellious, independent spirit with regard authority. Because everywhere he touched authority, it burned him. His father was inadequate in the dysfunctional family of which he was a part. He could have stepped up many times and tried to negotiate and reconcile the brokenness in his family, but he just didn't. And when Joseph shared his dreams, although his father was open to the possibility of those dreams happening, he really didn't step out to bat for Joseph. And then, of course, is his older brothers. He might have expected them to be a little more supportive, but the older brothers let him down. And then there's Potiphar. What do you say about a man who knows his wife is lying through her teeth but takes it out on you, the innocent? You say, how do you know that, Don? Well, I think that if Potiphar believed that, Joseph, that his wife was telling the truth, he wouldn't have sent Joseph to prison. He would have had him executed. That, that's just what you did with slaves. They would never try anything like that. And if they did, they were just removed from life. The fact that he was put in jail, to me, indicates that Potiphar didn't believe his wife. Number one, he knew Joseph, and number two, he knew his wife. What, what do you say to a person like that who has no scruples, who doesn't function in integrity, who's leading the household but is quite willing just to not deal with the conflict and the confrontations but just sell an innocent person into slavery? It could have been quite easy for Joseph to say, you know, wherever I've touched leadership, they've, they've ruined my life. And he could have so easily developed an independent, rebellious attitude toward people in authority. And some people do. By virtue of the experiences that they go through, they don't trust. They won't, they won't give their heart or life to anybody. The problem with that is that um, God brings you around and suddenly you are facing a situation that for all the world looks like the ones you've come out of, but isn't. Because now Joseph's got to risk trusting Pharaoh. Tell me your dreams and I'll make you a ruler over Egypt. Yeah, whatever. Heard that story before. Not gonna buy into that or believe that. Just send me back. You know, my dreams, by the way, have gone from here to here to here to here. And you're there saying, I'll lift them to there. Look, note the trajectory. You know, I don't trust you and I'm not buying into this. What would he have lost? And then, of course, this moral compromise as Potiphar's wife who, by the way, would have been the epitome of Egyptian sensuality. Joseph didn't run from her because she was as ugly as a bus. He ran from her because he knew that if he stayed there, he would be a victim. And, uh, and, and the enemy comes to you and says, oh, this pie in the sky stuff when you die. You know, live, pray, eat, hay, get pie in the sky when you die. What about right now? You've got needs right now. 
and they're there and can be satisfied. Everybody else is, why wouldn't you? And we sell our dreams down the tubes because we can't wait. You've heard me say it before, I unapologetically say it again. The best definition of sin I've ever heard is the attempt to take by force that which God wants to give you by grace. God is interested in your needs. He cares for you. And he has a way of seeing those needs met in a way that does not violate his righteousness. And he will give you the fulfillment of all of those things that he's planned, except that you try and take it by force before it's due. And we pay such a cost for that, such a cost. You say, Don, we'll go, you know, God forgives. Yeah, he does, absolutely he does. And even, even then, God can restore dreams. But there are times when people involve themselves to such a point that their dreams are less than they could have been because of our moral compromise. Take Samson. Samson was promised that he would be a deliverer of Israel. When he died, Israel was still in bondage to the Philistines. Yep, he brought the house down, killed lots of them, but didn't fulfill the purposes of God. And that's what compromise does. You buy into something that short circuits things, and it's exactly what it does. It short circuits the promises that God has for you. Any of these things, whether it's the cynicism, the, the bitterness, the rebellion that develops in our heart toward authorities, the moral compromise, any one of these indulged in can destroy or at least badly detour the promises that God has given you. And I tell you, there is an adversary who's trying to sell you a bill of goods. This is not just about your brokenness. It is that, of course. He has something that he comes in and feeds on and pushes, but he's behind the scenes because he knows that some of you carry promise that if it comes to fruition will mean the loss of his territory, the loss of his authority, and he will contest you for that. He will not simply give it up to you. He will come like a roaring lion and try and take it from you and take you down with it. And the Bible says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that there will be suffering, but believing that the suffering of this world is not worthy to be compared with that which waits for us, both in terms of the fulfillment of God's promise in the here and now, and then beyond that into eternity. I can't remember which one of the saints it was, but she, she said, oh, all of the sufferings you face in this world are simply one night in a bad hotel compared with eternity. And I thought, what a great way to say it. Some of us have, in our journeys in the third world, we've had bad hotels. Not even sure that you'd call them hotels but it was only a night. The adversary will use much the same techniques that he used on Joseph on you. Why? A, he's not that creative, and B, why would he need to be? They work. Devastatingly, they work. Friends, don't be, don't be naive. Um, God has given great and precious promises, the Scripture says, but the enemy hates both you and the promises, and he will contest them and fight for them. So be alert, and when you recognize those dark fingerprints on the circumstances that you're facing, resist them. Pray, seek God, stand against them, ask them to be thrown down. I've, I've told this story before again. I'm, you know, one of the downsides of being in a place for a long, long time is you've told all your stories and you've got no more stories to tell. So you just repeat them and everyone goes, oh, <laughs> here he goes. 
I, I, like you, you know, from a Western point of view, I've, you know, I, I believe the scriptures and I believe in a personal devil. I believe in the steadfast hatred, the obdurate pride, all of those things that I've spoken about, I believe. But sometimes you're staring into the face of something. And, and, um, and we've, we've had some experiences like that. I remember Karen, you know, who's, who sometimes can be a vivid dreamer, having dreams where she was struggling with an opponent, opponent has woken up and the struggle has continued and has found herself being dragged out of bed by an unseen opponent and thrown to the ground. I believe in the demonic realm. When we were in the Philippines, one time Janaea was with us. She was just a young girl. We were involved in a seminar that God was moving in a way that I have never seen before and I actually have never seen since. Just a remarkable way. And in the midst of that seminar, as I was standing worshiping on the last night, a voice spoke to me. Now, it wasn't audible, but it was so real that I entered into a conversation with it. And the voice said, I'm going to kill your daughter. You come here and do this, you are going to pay for it. I'm going to kill your daughter. And I asked, how are you going to do that? What, what are you going to do? How, you know, what are you talking about? And um, he just said, she's going to burn to death. I'm going to set the house on fire. Because Janaea was only younger and she'd stayed home that night with the babysitters and the missionaries' children. And she was <clears throat> in a house and, and he just said, I'm going to set the house on fire. And it was an old wooden building, so it would have gone up. It didn't take much imagination to, to know that it would burn. And I went, I went on in this conversation. I probably shouldn't have. I was just so real and so taken back. But I, but I asked another question. I said, how do you think you're going to start a fire? And the voice said, I'm going to jam the fan. You know, it's the Philippines. You all got fans. And it's so hot. And, and he said, I'm going to jam the fan. It will go red hot and it will burst into flames. And you will pay for what you have just done. Now, at that point, I know I'm a slow learner. I am not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I realized, holy cows, I'm dealing with a malevolent personality here. Doesn't the Bible say something about be sober and alert, know that your, devil is, that, that your enemy is going around like a roaring lion seeking to devour? And I thought, oh, resist him. Okay, yeah, 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 that's right. I gotta what am I doing talking to him? You know? So I started to pray. I didn't tell Karen because I knew what she'd say. I'm going home right now. And, and, and we couldn't do that just then. And so afterwards I told her and she said, holy cows, you should have told me I would have gone home. I said, yeah, I know. I said, that's exactly what he wants us to do. And she said, well, how about we go home now? I said, you know, we've, we've just got some things. Anyway, we, we got home and the house was still standing and we poked our heads into the room and nails fast asleep. And the next morning I got up and I went down. We were chatting at breakfast with the missionaries and I mentioned the, the voice and they looked at one another like, whoa. And I said, why, what happened? So they got home before we did last night. They went up into the girls' room and the fan was jammed and it was red hot. And of course they were un able to unplug it and cool it down. And you think, whoa. I tell you what, I came away from that with a renewed sense of an adversary who hates me bitterly. And he doesn't hate you any less. It's not just me. You say, well, you deserve to be hated. No, no, you do too. <laughs> I'm sorry, but you're in this with me. We're in the same boat. And I just, you know, in my funnier moments, I imagine some kind of angels there, you know, with a, <laughs> I was, can you get him home? <laughs> and I'm so grateful that in that instance, at least, God was able to protect and, 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 uh, and cover. But we face an adversary. 
and he hates what rests on your life and he wants to crush it and he will do anything he can through the circumstances that you face to sow cynicism, bitterness, rebellion, hatred. He'll sow his seed into you if you're open to receive it. The, the, the cry of God for us is don't receive it. Recognize where it comes from. Stand against it. Resist it. Because you carry a promise and you need to protect that promise so that it comes to fulfillment and the kingdom goes ahead. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.